Good day to you all and herzlich willkommen to the Botschtuber podcast. This podcast brings together some of the most influential historians, politicians, and more from across the United States and former lands of the Habsburg Empire to discuss the incredible people and events that connect them. My name is Luke Morgante, and today we are here with the industrious and endearing Andrew Nagorski. In the 1940s, his parents Sigmund and Maria made the journey from Poland to the United States as emigres. His father's subsequent work with the U.S. Foreign Service provided ample opportunities to get a taste for the world, priming the young Nagorski well for his truly transatlantic literary and journalistic career. In 1973, he joined the editing team at Newsweek, where he continued to thrive in editorial and foreign correspondency roles. In 1982, his enterprising reporting as Newsweek's Moscow bureau chief came in conflict with the agenda of the Soviet regime leading to his expulsion from the country and consequently providing much inspiration for his first book-length project, Reluctant Farewell, an American reporter's candid look inside the Soviet Union. Since then, he has produced a number of other books, primarily covering the events and individuals that shaped World War II. His latest work, Saving Freud, The Rescuers Who Brought Him to Freedom, takes a very transparent and personal approach to the life and legacy of renowned psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud. The story emphasizes his relationships with a diverse group of individuals who would ultimately help Freud escape from his lifelong Vienna home shortly after the Anschluss of Austria by Nazi Germany in 1938. It's really nice to finally meet you, Andrew. Thank you for being here. A pleasure being here too, Luke. Um, As you mentioned in the book, I wanted to bring this up first. There are two key Freud museums today. One at his original Bergasse 19 or 19 residence in Vienna where he spent most of his life, and the other in his London residence, where he spent his final year after fleeing from the Nazis. Uh, Do you recall your first time being at one of these museums, kind of what your relationship was with Freud at that point, and if you have been back since completing this book and becoming so intimate with his family, himself, and their stories? I certainly recall the last time I was in both museums because I had wanted to go back there while I was writing the book, but that happened to coincide with the pandemic, which meant travel was almost impossible. So as soon as uh, travel resumed, I went to Vienna, went to Bergasse. As you know, the, the, the Bergasse apartment and office and now museum uh, has been redone a little, it's a little more dynamic, more exhibitions than it was originally. And it's always having done all this research on Freud, I really felt this was familiar territory to me, even though I hadn't explored it all that much earlier. And then I was in London in August, uh, this last August, so about a year later, and visited the Maresfield Garden House, which also has the distinction of having most of his most famous furniture, like the famous couch, uh, a lot of his statuettes, a a lot of things that his rescuers, the people I write about in Saving Freud, managed to get out, particularly Marie Bonaparte, one of the one of the characters in that book. So in there, uh, it's a, a somewhat different experience than in Vienna, in that it almost feels like uh, yeah, you, you go from one room to the other, it almost feels lived in right now. And you almost expect, oh, I've got to run into Sigmund or Anna or Martha around the corner. 
To what extent did you feel a personal connection to the family by the time you had finished the book? By the time I finished the book, I felt a very strong personal connection. I have to say, when I started on this project, that that did not exist. To me, I think, as to many people, Freud was this iconic figure, fascinating, someone you read about in, in any introductory psychology course or any intellectual history course, but he always seemed somewhat aloof, a fairly cold figure, and his personality was not three-dimensional at all to, to, to me, and I think in, in most... This often happens with famous figures in history. They become almost cutouts. But as I researched the book, and particularly as I read his extensive correspondence, and one of the great gifts to any modern historian or writer is the fact that someone like Freud and his contemporaries wrote letters to themselves and to each other all the time. Freud was an amazing correspondent. And those letters give you a feel of what he was thinking on that particular day about this particular issue or this particular person. And there's an intimacy there and also a beauty in the language which comes through. He was a very good writer. And I, I sometimes really worry about future historians who are going to have to try to untangle emails and texts and or whatever other forms of electronic communication, even if they manage to sort it out. It doesn't ha it's not written the same way as people uh, who were writing before when they wrote either by, by pen or typewriter or on their typewriters. Uh, the, 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 the whole experience, the tactile experience of writing, I think affects the quality of the writing and 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 uh, I I just felt I got to know him. For instance, his relationship with Martha Freud, before they were married for four years, they were engaged while she was in Hamburg and he was in Vienna most of the time. And he did not feel he had enough money to to marry and start a family, so he was trying to get his career going. During that course of those four years, Freud wrote about nine hundred letters to Martha, and those just reveals so much about his young personality and about his interests. I, I really did feel as, as I was ending the book that I uh, very close to Freud. And, and, and I also came to appreciate not just his, his breakthrough of psychoanalysis, which of course is the most famous thing, but his uh, sensitivity and, and the way he treated people and the way he observed the world around him and things like his very dry sense of humor, which most people, most, most people do not associate with Freud at all. It was, uh, it was really interesting as, as I was reading along the book to find that it wasn't necessarily always about Freud himself or his discoveries or even the implications of the Anschluss and the rise of anti-Semitism. But a large amount of the book seems to point at the very basic but important human story of familial relations, relations with friends, and how your relationships kind of define your understanding of yourself as well as the world around you. And um, pretty early on, you draw a comparison between the experiences of Freud and Hitler, both in Vienna. Freud being a bit older and having lived there longer, and Hitler coming with his mother uh, in the early 1900s, and that the experiences that Hitler had in Vienna can be heavily credited with shaping his later 
awful policies, of course, and anti-Semitic mindset. Uh, the different politicians that were in power in Vienna at the time, I, one of the names mentioned was Karl Luger. But then there's also this side to Vienna where a Jewish psychologist with this, or a psychoanalyst with this crazy new theory in the eyes of many is able to rise to peak celebrity status, arguably the most famous person in Vienna at the time of the Anschluss. How do you describe these two sides to Vienna at the time, and how do you think they played roles in shaping both of these individuals? Well, they play, played a huge role. And Vienna is really, I feel, almost a character in my book uh, in the sense that, it, well, first of all, it's a city I've been to many times in many circumstances, and it's a city I love going back to. But I also was always aware of its different sides. I happened to be there, for instance, in the 1980s when the Kurt Waldheim presidential campaign was going on, and you could see how sort of the some of the old anti-Semitic uh, impulses were being aroused again. And yet, it's a majestic city. And, and I, in order to understand Freud and his mindset, which I wanted to, I felt I couldn't just go into the story of how Freud got out of Vienna and why it took him so long to even consider leaving Vienna. Uh, I had to, had to get into his mindset when, as he was growing up, when Vienna was the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Vienna was a city which was incredibly cosmopolitan in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as the empire was. It was multinational, and it, and Jews were were about 10% of the population. And there, yes, there was very strong anti-Semitism, but yes, many, many Jews were incredibly successful there in the, in the arts, in the sciences, uh, in all sorts of fields. And, and, for, and Freud himself, was aware of anti-Semitism, but never let it stop him, and never, never was, never allowed it to intimidate him. In fact, he would confront. One well, of the few times where he actually came head to head with somebody who was anti-Semitic, who was, for instance, threatening his boys, he just char charged right at them. He was not going to be back down. You could go to Vienna as our grow up in Vienna, as Freud did from age four, and as, as a Jewish intellectual do very well there and, and have a very broad outlook on life. Or you could be someone like Hitler who comes to Vienna, who thinks he's going to be this great artist, who doesn't pass the exam for the Fine Arts Academy and is frustrated and falls in with kind of all the the, the people who are the most frustrated under under underbelly of that population, and and it feeds his 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 paranoia, his 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 whole oh somebody's got to be blamed for his own failures. Uh, so both were possible in Vienna, and and uh, it. it for me, one of the intriguing notions was to imagine that somewhere on the streets of Vienna, during the time when those two men overlapped, they might have pa passed each other on the street. But it's also they were moving in different worlds, even though they were in physically in the same city. And you mentioned how there was the one scene, I believe he was at like a shipyard or at a dock with his boat and two of his sons. And he just confronts this group of, I believe... It's like 10, 10 men who are just shouting anti-Semitic rhetoric at him and his sons, threatening them, and he just walks right through. And I was trying to kind of understand through the course of the story who Freud was as a person, and it, 
it seems very disparate at times between his family life and personal private life and that of his uh, demeanor and personality when conducting psychoanalysis or in a professional workspace. That incident which you mentioned of confronting the, this anti-Semitic small group of people uh, is, I, th- was, I thought was very revealing. This happens when his son, a couple of his sons are still quite small and they've gone on, out on this pond to go fishing on the outskirts of Vienna and some, anti, anti, some people start gathering around and, and shouting anti-Semitic remarks at them, claiming they could not fish there, although there was no restriction on it. And, and the boys came home and quite troubled and, and Freud promptly marched out with them and they got in a in a rowboat to cross this little pond towards where this group of people was. I think it was mostly men, but there were also some women too. And he, Freud had a walking stick. He gets out of the rowboat and he just starts swinging this, this walking stick back and forth. It's like a parting of the waters and everybody scatters at the sight of this rather stern looking figure wielding his walking stick. And so it, it showed that Freud did not not want to be seen as ever giving into this sort of thing. Uh, in fact, his Freud recalled a, a, something his father once told him that in, uh, once his father said, I was walking down the street and a man grabbed my hat and shouted anti-Semitic slogans at me and then threw my hat in the gutter. And, and Freud, who was a small boy at the time, asked his father, well, what did you do? And the, fa- and the, and the father said, well, I, I knelt down and, and collected my hat. And, and Freud was very upset about this. He felt his father didn't stand up for this man. He allowed, allowed himself to be humiliated. Later in life, he, he, he was more forgiving and realized the, what the circumstances might have been. But he was determined to always to stand up to people if, if those is kinds of things happened. But at the same time, his, his oldest son, Martin Freud, writing about this incident, said, my father never mentioned this incident again. It was just something normal. He responded. And as far as he was concerned, that was that. And that was also something that was, I think, very, very uh, revealing about Freud, that he was willing to stand up, but he didn't make a big deal out of it. Okay, things happen. There, there are people who are anti-Semites, who are, who are, who are bullies, and, and you just stand up to them and you go, go on with your life. And he carried this, maybe not indifference, but he liked to address all these difficult issues head on and try to recognize them as what they were in the moment, it seems, as opposed to uh, having this ongoing, persistent fear of what they could mean for the future. And do you believe that that is also evident in how he would treat his patients, where during the psychoanalysis, he was able to remain as neutral as possible and he would discuss with them very personal, very taboo subjects such as incest, or at the time, it was obviously much more controversial, but homosexuality. And he was often very frank and candid with them. But then it was very clear in some of his letters and correspondences outside of psychoanalysis that he had opinions on these subjects. How do you understand his differentiation between the psychoanalytic patients and that professional work and his own personal understanding of the world around him. 
I found one of the most interesting things was this contrast, as you say, between the Freud who counseled patients uh, and who went through this whole process of psychoanalysis and the way he conducted his own personal life. For instance, of course, a lot of Freud's theories are based on human sexuality and the notion that we repress so much and society is so hypocritical. And he he once said uh, something along the lines, I stand for an infinitely freer sexual life, although I myself have made very little, little use of such freedom. So he would, his patients would come to him and many of and many of people who became his future colleagues would come to him and would, would describe all sorts of, of sexual, a sexual lifestyle and, and a level of activity that he never was engaged in himself. He was married to one woman his whole whole life, and uh, you know, for more than fifty years. And he had a very conventional lifestyle with very set habits about his daily routine. But he was not judgmental about those who lived a very different lifestyle. And he felt that it was it was the role of psychoanalysis not to be judgmental, but to help people with these things. But in his, again, going back to his correspondence, you can see that he also had, while he was conservative personally in terms of lifestyle, he was very, for his time, he was certainly way ahead of his time. You mentioned homosexuality. Uh, There were a couple of cases where American mothers wrote to him saying, I would like to get have you accept my son as a patient and and to psychoanalyze them. And in one of these letters, the the, the mother describes her, her son's problems, but Freud writes back and says, "From what you say, I can see that 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 you believe your son is a homosexual, but you never say that. Why don't you? It's not something to be basically to be ashamed of. Uh, and psycho and, and if you think you're coming to me as a, as a psychoanalyst." to quote unquote, cure him of his homosexuality, then this is a mistake because no one will change unless they want to change. And he also said, we should be be aware that homosexuality has existed in, in, in all sorts of civilizations, including some of the, what we consider the highest civilizations like the Greeks and often was, was treated as something quite noble. So let us not be judgmental about it. And it, psychoanalysis may, I, I said, I have psychoanalyzed homosexuals who come in quite troubled by their, their own identity and their own, uh, own tendencies. But through psychoanalysis, they become much more comfortable with who, are, who they, are, they are. In other words, they remain homosexuals, but they come to terms with it. So to see that, and to, you know, at the, at that point in his, this is the early twentieth century. It's a very different approach than almost anybody was taking then, and his whole openness about the sexual issues was considered shocking at the time. But I think it was, it was, it was. He was a true revolutionary in his thinking, but a conservative in his personal lifestyle. That was one of my favorite parts of the book when he's explaining how the patients would come in very troubled with the fact that they were simply homosexual. And then by the end of a session or two, once he was able to convince them that it was okay and it was just part of their identity almost, then that acceptance immediately made them feel as if they no longer needed any psychoanalysis. And that was that. 
But the next thing I wanted to talk about was in one of the instances where his professional life overlapped heavily with his personal life was his daughter, Anna, the youngest of his children, I believe, who from a very young age felt she had to almost compete for her father's attention. She wasn't able to go out with her older siblings to certain events with him. So from very early on, she felt very close with him and the need to impress him. And this led to her becoming quite an impressive psychoanalyst and one of if not the closest individual to Freud uh, in his life. Um, But there's another figure as well, Marie Bonaparte, who may not have been his daughter by birth, but definitely develops similar roles to a daughter for Freud. Can you kind of explain who Anna and Marie Bonaparte were? And also, I was curious if you could add what their relationship was like with each other. Yeah, Anna Freud was the sixth of his six children and a favorite and especially she had competed very much growing up for for her father's attention with her next oldest sister Sophie Freud but Sophie Freud when she's in her 20s dies of the Spanish flu and this is a horrible loss to all of the Freud family and but the but what really defines Anna's life is the fact that as she grows up, she stays in the household. All the all her older siblings leave, get married, start their own lives. Anna stays, and from an early age, for instance, as a thirteen or fourteen year old, she's already sitting in on the sessions of of of, of uh, Freud and his colleagues on these Wednesday night gatherings in in the apartment where where they're discussing all their new theories of psychoanalysis. And later on, she becomes a very noted child psychoanalyst, and she continues to live with her parents in Bergasa 19 and then in London. She never marries, and in many, many portrayals, she's seen as someone who is fairly, you know, a, 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 a single woman, but in fact, she develops a very close friendship with an American woman by the name of Dorothy Burlingham, whose family name is Tiffany from the Tiffany family. Uh, the famous Tiffany and Company was uh, was started by her grandfather Charles Tiffany, and then her her father was Louis Comfort Tiffany. The the famous all the Tiffany glass that we now know uh, that is world famous was uh, first designed by him and. Dorothy Burlingham Tiffany comes to Vienna in the 20s to have her four children who are who are having all sorts of problems after Dorothy divorced her husband uh, to be treated by Anna and eventually they develop a very close relationship and they become companions for life. It's never quite explicit whether it, there is a sexual component to this or not, but they are in effect of, uh, the, everyone in the family treats them as a couple. They live together. They, they, they well, actually, uh, Dor- Dorothy lives in apartments close by, and it's only after Freud dies and Martha Freud dies that she moves in full time with Anna. But they are always together. So, Anna Freud stays and becomes Freud's main professional colleague in Vienna and then in London. Actually, represents him when he no longer can go to various uh, uh, psychoanalytic co- conferences. And she also 
is is a is a caregiver when he comes down with cancer of the jaw and has to have these prostheses put in, which are very awkward and and painful. She's the one who knows how to do that, and so she really stays with him all the time. And then the other person who enters the picture in the 1920s is Marie Bonaparte, who the name itself should ring some bells because she her grandfather was the brother of Napoleon Bonaparte. So she is a great grand niece of Napoleon. So she has that on her on her resume. And then when she's a young woman, she marries the prince of Greece and Denmark. So she becomes a princess, but she has a very distant marriage. Uh, she is very sexually active and has affairs with all sorts of people, including the prime minister of France, Aristide Briand. But she is frustrated sexually. She she can't achieve orgasm. She eventually finds her way to Freud in Vienna to help with these problems. And he is not able to solve that problem. But she becomes so devoted to Freud that she first studies with him and then becomes a psychoanalyst in her own right and a major so, so supporter of the psychoanalytic movement. And then along with Anna, a major player in the effort to get Freud out of Vienna when it's almost too late to do so. I was curious because they both play major roles in Freud's life and in the book, but there's not much overlap within about the relationship between the two of them, Anna and Marie. And I was curious if there was ever any tension of any kind, because I know the young Anna at times could be jealous if she didn't have enough time with her father, if she felt that even Martha at times was spending more time with him than she was able to. Were there ever any conflicts between Anna and Marie, or was it more cordial? I did not come across any conflicts. Remember, Marie comes into Freud's life in the mid-1920s, so Anna is already a grown woman too. So, so she's more secure in her relationship with her father. She's gone through psychoanalysis with her father, which, by the way, was something he says later on. I wouldn't recommend that psychoanalysts uh, psychoanalyze their own children, but in Anna's case, it was okay. But no, in fact, they had a pretty close relationship, and Marie was very sensitive that this was a very close-knit family and was very supportive of everyone in the family. And uh, Martin Freud, the oldest brother, uh, the, the, the oldest son of the Freuds, said that Anna was really someone who kept us together and really helped us helped our keep our morale up when it when the Nazis took over and when you had this harrowing time of trying to get out of Vienna so she provided not only material assistance she she provided the money for a lot of the bribes that the Nazis were demanding but she provided moral assistance and and I think and and Anna Freud who who always had was determined to do the most she could to protect and 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 uh, her father in every way understood that and really appreciated that. It's a, it's a, it's very interesting. Thank you for answering. That's been probably my biggest personal question for a while. If there ever was any anything between those two, but uh, very much like Freud at times could be hypocritical when it came to himself. And he took his daughter Anna for psychoanalysis treatment under his own authority, whereas he denounced that practice for others. He also was very against using psychoanalysis in reporting at first and in criticism of public figures. 
But later on, after meeting the U.S. diplomat William Bullitt, he famously agrees to make a very critical book about Woodrow Wilson and his role at the Paris Peace Conference after World War One. Why do you think that Freud was willing to make this change and kind of backtrack on his earlier beliefs that psychoanalysis should be separate? Yeah, I would say uh, about when concerning Freud and his change of heart about psychoanalyzing your own children. First of all, when he did when he did that with Anna, it was very early days of psychoanalysis. The, the kind of the rule books were not written yet. There was a lot of improv, and and that was the improvisation in in his case, and and he came to realize that this should not be the model going forward. So I wouldn't call it hypocrisy. Maybe I think a little gradual self-awareness. The Woodrow Wilson case is something different. William Bullitt, who was this very gifted first American journalist and then diplomat, had come to Freud in the 20s with his own sexual problems or analysis. And then Freud discovers that Bullitt is planning to write a book about the world leaders at the time in the 20s and during World War I. And he's doing a chapter on Woodrow Wilson. And they get to talking and they discover they both have the same feeling about Wilson, which is that they despised him. Uh, They had different reasons. Bullitt did because he felt that uh, he had actually been part of the peace delegation at the end of World War I and felt that Wilson had totally ignored his recommendations and sent him off to Russia to to as a young a young diplomat to even negotiate with Lenin and Trotsky and others and then totally basically washed his hands of him and his recommendations and Freud as an Austrian felt that the Treaty of Versailles and everything was a disaster in terms of of course uh, uh, destroying the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but also in laying the groundwork for what they felt were going to be future conflicts, which proved unfortunately accurate. So he 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 then disregards his own rule, as you say, of our 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 recommendation not to try to apply psychoanalysis at a distance to say world leaders or to any public figure because he he is so passionate about Wilson. And that passion is meant met by William Bullis' fashion, and they and they do this book together. Incidentally, the book took a long time to do. They had some disputes over the content, and then they were hesitant about publishing it. It didn't get published till after both of them had died. Uh, so it was not. And when it did get published, it got got pretty poor reviews. So this was not. Freud's best literary effort. Freud did very well. He was a very good writer, as I pointed out. But I think the fact that he went against some of his own uh, strictures and, and, and recommendations and did this book did not serve him too well in this case. As a journalist yourself, I'm curious to what your opinion on the application of psychoanalysis in journalism is. And coincidentally, in your book, you mentioned the names John Gunther multiple times, as well as Dorothy Thompson and Vincent Sheehan, uh, all of whom were very revolutionary at the time and important U.S. foreign correspondents during the interwar periods. Uh, John Gunther, or Gunther writing uh, quite famously, the last, or he wrote, 
I'm forgetting the name. I believe it's Inside Europe. Inside Europe. Yeah, he wrote a whole series of books, Inside Europe, Inside Germany, Inside France, so forth. Yes. And um, the last podcast that we did was with Dr. Deborah Cohen from Northwestern University about her book, Last Night at the Hotel Imperial, which covers those three journalists Mm -hmm. and uh, Francis Gunther, John Gunther's wife, and H.R. Knickerbocker. Um, all of whom were said to take a lot of Freud's teachings into their own work yes. and try to paint more personal descriptions of the many dictators that were rising at this time. In your experience, how should or how does psychoanalysis fit into journalism and to what extent did it fit into your own? Yeah. Incidentally, before I get to that part, uh, you know, Dorothy Thompson did did know Freud uh, in Vienna, and I think John Gunther met him at least once. He was not that impressed with him personally, uh, but they were all under, I mean, Freud's shadow was everywhere. And in terms of the notion that you have to get more inside the thinking of leaders, not just their positions, what they normally say about what they are, their policies are, I think that too can be traced back to Freud. Uh, And as a journalist, I always felt I wanted to convey, especially when I was in places like the Soviet Union, Poland, Germany, Austria, convey how to my readers, particularly readers back in the States, although I, I also wrote for the international edition of Newsweek, but of basically people who were not where I was, the kind of the mindset that was there, not just of the leadership, but of, of, of people who were going through these experiences and evaluating it. I wouldn't call it psychoanalysis per se, but attempting to, but, but there is a touch of, of that, of, of trying to, what motivates a leader to to certain kind of behavior, particularly when it's really reckless behavior, really violent behavior. What motivates a Vladimir Putin today, for instance, to take invade Ukraine and and to pursue this this war uh, with with this with the savagery that he's doing? That I, I think you can't do that simply based on what are his ostensible goals and positions or how other people analyze it. You do at a certain point almost have to try to imagine yourself in his position and then why would you even begin to go down this road? As as an example, uh, my first posting in Moscow in the early 1980s when Brezhnev was in his final years and everyone was said the Soviet Union, uh, Brezhnev's regime was in decline. I once did do a piece where I said, said, imagine if I was Brezhnev, what would I be thinking about the world right now? And just tried to did that as an exercise. It's it's a little bit of a risky exercise, but but it, it, it I think at least it makes readers consider perspectives that they may not have considered before, and so. In that sense, yes, psychoanalysis does creep into a lot of fields, and journalism was 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 absolutely one of them. Did, by any chance, uh, your account that came out in 1985, the reluctant farewell, right after your time in the Soviet Union, were there? How much inspiration came from John Gunther's work? Because it seems quite uh, 
like there might be some parallels. I don't think it came that uh, reluctant farewell on the Soviet Union. That I don't think it was inspired by Gunther, and and that was my most personal sort of book about just my experiences as a reporter in the Soviet Union. But of course, the experiences of previous reporters were in my mind, and and uh, I felt especially when I was reporting from Germany and Austria, I was very conscious of the things that people like John Gunther, William Shirer, Dorothy Thompson, and others did. And that's what, one of the reasons why I find that period so fascinating I, it was to think if I had been, happened to have been born much earlier than I was, and I had been in their shoes, what would I have done? And what, well, first of all, what would I have understood? I always tell people, don't immediately go to what would I have done, but what would I have understood about what was happening in the world around me? Because it's, it, it is very difficult when you're in the midst of major events to really understand their direction or where they'll end up. I happen to be have spent that last part of the Cold War mostly on the other side of what was later called the Iron Curtain. I can't say that I was able to predict that in 1989, that whole world would collapse. I had a feeling that at some point it would, but how? and when exactly I, I was no prophet. And I think the same way we tend to look back at the rise of, of the Third Reich and, and what happened in that part of the world and say, well, people must have immediately understood where this was going and how it was going to turn out. Not necessarily. And, uh, and that's why I try to put the readers in, in that period then. And one of the things which I think with, with in Saving Freud that what intrigued me about this story was here is this man who has so many brilliant insights about the working of the human mind and who also understood something about the dangers of of radical mass movements his his books his book civilization and its discontents written in 1930 talked about the dangers of of, of what he called the bestiality of man and the blind willingness of many people to, to blindly follow demagogues. And yet in his own life, he was very, he kept hoping against hope that he would not have to contend with that in Vienna in the 30s, that somehow it would not touch his life and his family's life. And that's why he ended up staying in Vienna as long as he did until actually Hitler was speaking just a, a short way away from his from where he lived. So I think it's uh, it's always easy in retrospect to say I would have I would have understood this and then maybe I would have done the logical things. But when you're in the midst of these events, uh, it's much harder. And even someone like Sigmund Freud could delude himself. Freud, while it may be hard for some to understand why he would wait so long to actually leave Vienna, he waited for the Anschluss, which he, until the last moment, was hoping could be avoided by the Austrian government at the time, but then even stayed a little bit afterwards, arguably uh, too late, if not for the introduction of Anton Sauerwald to the rescue team that helped him escape to London. Could you kind of explain how Anton Sauerwald played into this dramatic escape and how you would describe his character to people that don't know him? Yes. Uh, one of the, I mean, there are 
the well-known figures in the escape, and we've talked about Anna Freud, Marie Bonaparte, William Bullitt, who was by that time the U.S. ambassador to France and who was assigned the chief U.S. diplomat in, in Vienna to keep coming around to Freud's apartment so that when the Nazis were coming in, they could see the Americans were very, were monitoring this. And then this was a time when, when there was still the assumption that Hitler did not want to needlessly antagonize the Americans and still was a little bit PR conscious, let us say. And, but, and, and then you had, and you also had Ernest Jones, who was this, his British supporter, a Welshman who had started, who was a, a fervent proponent of psychoanalysis and had, who had come early on to help, uh, help Freud and then went back to London to work on getting entry permits because there are two parts of this process. Once they convinced Freud that he had to get out of Vienna and Freud himself became convinced of that when Anna Freud was called into the Gestapo and he was almost beside himself with fear that she would not return. She does return, but he realizes, he said, look, we're at this point, Freud is over 80. Martha Freud is in her late seventies. He said, you know, our lives are coming to an end soon. And maybe we would stay if it was only about us, but it's about Anna too, who will never leave us. And she's got a life, long life ahead of her, God willing. And therefore uh, we have to get out. And he agrees to this operation. And Ernest Jones goes back to work on entry permits because already countries like Britain, the US and others were certainly not eager to accept Jewish refugees from the Third Reich, uh, even famous refugees like Freud. But then there is the other part of the process is how do you get permission from the new Nazi authorities to get out of Vienna? And when the Nazis came in, they assigned someone called a trustee to the prominent Jewish families. And usually those were also wealthy Jewish families. And one was assigned to Freud. And that was Anton Sauerwald. He was a 35-year-old Nazi official. He had, he, he had he was a chemist by education, and he came in looking like the typical anti-Semite, spewing very, very aggressive rhetoric. Uh, and the job of that trustee was to try to extort as much money and wealth from these Jewish families. And then it wasn't quite clear what would happen next. Would they be allowed to leave? Would they be imprisoned? This was, remember, still a few years before the Holocaust starts in earnest. Uh, so, so everything's a little bit ambiguous. So a lot depended on the trustee. And this man, uh, Sauerwald, who starts out so sounding horrible and very threatening, spends a lot of time in the Freud apartment with Freud. And after a while, he started, aside from going over everything about their finances and, and their possessions, he also starts reading Freud's works and is very impressed by them. And it turns out that Sauerwald, when he was at the University of Vienna, had a chemistry professor and who was an elderly Jewish professor who was a friend of Freud, who had subsequently, had subsequently died. But this Sauerwald, despite his anti-Semitism, remembered this professor fondly, and it seemed that he somehow transferred that, that, those feelings somewhat to Freud. He saw Freud as somewhat of a similar figure, and he, and he began to speak in much more reassuring terms to, to, to particularly to Anna Freud, who was handling a lot of the dealings with these Nazi officials. And at one point, in fact, when a bunch of 
Nazis burst in and were very imperious in their behavior. He said, oh, you can't, you know, they, they're Prussians. They don't understand how important your father is. So yeah, as a good Austrian, he was, he was, he was also uh, getting across that he was more, far more civilized than the, than the, than the so-called Prussians. So what happens at a key moment is that Sauerwald finds out that Freud discovered has some foreign bank accounts. Now, that was perfectly normal and legal before the Anschluss. Freud had foreign, foreign patients, particularly from the U.S. and Britain, and he had some foreign bank accounts. And so there was money that, was, that, that the Nazis now considered to be illegal money. And if, if they had known about this, they, they might have, that in itself might have been grounds enough to hold Freud and say, you can't leave Vienna at all. And Sauerwald, it's not so much what he does, it's what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell his superiors about these foreign bank accounts, at least not until Freud gets out of the country and has all the permissions to do that. So it turns out in the end that there's even one Nazi here who I count as kind of a, a, a late recruit to the rescue squad, a very different profile than all the other rescuers, but a, but a rescuer none, nonetheless. What do you feel is his legacy in helping them? Because on one hand, he is clearly a Nazi and even... Before the Anschluss, he is part of the Nazi party in the city. Um, he's spewing the rhetoric when he first meets them, and he continues to work with the Nazis throughout the war. However, following Freud's death and the conclusion of the war, when Anna Freud finds out that he is being imprisoned for his role uh, alongside the Nazis, she writes a letter saying that he was paramount to their escape, and this uh, leads to his uh, freedom from those crimes. Yes, I mean the Freud family was actually split on Sauerwald's role. The Anna Freud, as you say, was the one who said she observed him up close. She felt he played a crucial role. One of Freud's nephews, who later was in the U.S. Army, actually wanted to have him prosecuted for 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 his role. Uh, and it was Anna who, who tried to set him straight on that. So I think, first of all, he was a relatively unknown figure until recently. And, and, and for instance, in the Vienna archives, there's just a little bit of information about him. But it's, it's, he's, I'd say he's, he's one of these characters who's interesting, not because he had a momentous role, but his role may have been critical enough in that one area at, the, at a critical moment that he really has to be part of this story of how Freud and his family got out of Vienna. Okay, so finally, going into the book, when you were first writing Saving Freud, what were you hoping that the message would be? Or what, what did you hope that readers would take away from the story? And did that change at all to now? What do you hope when you're talking to someone who has read the book, or you're hearing about it being sold everywhere on the bookshelves. <laughs> There's numerous reviews. Uh, even Seth MacFarlane, the famous writer of Family Guy, left a review. What, um, what do you hope that people take away from Freud's story and the story of his peers? Well, what I hope and what I hope from the beginning is, first of all, I wanted to, when I started this, as I say, to understand the story, who Freud was, and then how he lived his life and why he was caught, got caught in this situation. It was something 
That is not something I had thought about. I think uh, very many, many people who know about Freud didn't necessarily think that since he was born in 1856, a lot of people did not realize he lived until the outbreak of World War II. And so how he got caught in that drama at the end of his life is a story in and of itself. And, and, and that, that I found fascinating. But I think it's, it, it gets back to this issue of how someone like this uh, could misjudge the situation to be caught. Although I, you do have to keep put into account that he was quite old by the time he was caught in the situation. He was over 80 and he'd been fighting jaw cancer from his cigar smoking for 15 years. So all of which makes a person inclined to say, I don't want to have a huge change in my life. He never wanted to live anywhere outside of Vienna, even though he sometimes complained about Vienna, but he, he was always, this was his home. This was where he had, he had built his career and, and his family. Uh, so I hope that that story illustrates again, the, da the dangers of becoming too complacent about your own surroundings when the world around you is going through huge upheavals. But I, the other part of it, I hope it will also bring to life Freud himself as more of a real person, a three-dimensional figure with both very appealing aspects of his personality, some less appealing, some obviously some shortcomings. But I came away with a great deal of, uh, of warmth, a feeling of warmth about Freud and someone who could, for instance, at the very end of this process, when he was trying to get out of Vienna and they finally gone through all the hoops and paid all the all the fines and all that, which there are so-called flight tax, which the Nazis were imposing. And he had he was and a Nazi official comes into his apartment and says, before we give you the exit permit, you have to sign, sign this statement. And the statement reads, Oh, I've been treated very well by the new authorities here of the Third Reich. Uh, they and it goes on and on about how, how good his treatment was. When of course, of course, that was hardly the case. And he knows he's got to sign. He does it. But then, as he finishes signing it, he turn he he turns to this guy and says, "Could I add one line?" And the line would read, "I would recommend the Gestapo to anyone." This, his housekeeper overheard this and practically dropped dead on the spot, she recalls. Uh, but the, the, the Nazi official simply grabbed, grabbed the, uh, the statement with his signature and, and rushed out the door. So Freud, yeah, he, he had incredible intellectual courage, integrity. His judgment was not always perfect by any means. I hope people come away with a greater appreciation of Freud. And I just, as I, as I mentioned, felt a much more of an affection for Freud and the people around him. And it's also a story of friendship, the love within that family and the friendships he developed over his, his, over his career. If he had not developed these very close ties with these groups of, with these people who I call his rescue squad, the Marie Bonapartes, the William Bullets, uh, the Ernest Jones, and of course, his own daughter Anna, and then his and then his physician Max Schur, an Austria, who was the uh, the other Austrian Jew in the mix. The others, by the way, were mostly were mostly were mostly not Jewish. He they would not be have been so devoted to him, and they would never have been able to pull off this extraordinary escape.
So I hope it's just a good read, but also one that 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 says something about the importance of friendship, of loyalty, and of of uh, not being perfect in in your perception of the world, but being very honest about your feelings and, and your perceptions. In your writing, it's very clear that Freud is not only this great literary figure, but also almost as important or for him more important, it seems. He's a father figure to his family and also to some close friends. When you were learning about him and figuring out how to write this story, did you feel that you were able to relate to him more so? Or did you ever relate Freud to your own father, uh, who just coincidentally has a different version of the name Zygmunt, I believe the Polish version. Yes, a Polish version, and my metal na- name is is the Polish version, Zygmunt. Uh, so I'm Andrew Zygmunt Nagorski. So I guess that's not a t- <laughs> yeah. It was destiny. It, it was destiny, I guess. I never, yeah. When I grew up with that middle name, this to me seemed like an odd middle name to a kid growing up in the states uh, from a Polish family. Uh, uh, I, I I never quite made it. it. It took me a while to make the connection. Oh, that's the same name. The German version is is, is Sigmund Freud. Um, I don't think that's why I wrote the book, but it's it's a nice cosmic connection. And I think the also because my parents had to flee Poland. My father was in the Polish army in '39, and then managed to escape and. And, and found himself in exile and then found himself in exile in Britain with Polish forces under British command. The, the odyssey of Freud and exile and so forth felt close to me too. There's some kinship there, I think, in terms of family stories, different circumstances, different, but in both cases, fleeing the Nazis, having to start their lives completely all over again. And uh, the fact that I grew up as as a American who happened to be born, by the way, in the UK in Scotland, where my parents stayed after the war for a while, and my father had been in a Polish paratrooper unit based in Scotland, and then came to the states. And the fact that I I grew up an American instead of a Pole if, if, is is a product of that odyssey of exile. And uh, so, therefore, stories of exile and how people's lives changed dramatically in this period. Of course, there are countless stories and countless stories so that ended tragically. And it's also worth noting the other part of this story, which often is overlooked, is that Freud, four sisters who were still in Vienna when he left Vienna and who did not escape with him, there's some ambiguity about exactly why. I think they were they were also elderly. I think they did not want to go yet. And Freud left them money. And people still did not realize the dimensions of the horror that was about to descend. Uh, all four of those sisters died in the Holocaust. So people say sometimes say, wouldn't wouldn't have Freud survived if he had stayed in Vienna? I well, first of all, health wise, he he wouldn't have survived that long, but. But if he had, if he had health-wise survived, I'm not sure he would have survived. I don't think he would have survived the Nazis. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before the end? Talk about things that you're currently working on. I know that you're still writing articles that are very current and also 
uh, I feel especially well suited for the time because of your experience in Soviet Union in the 80s. Yeah, unfortunately, that topic keeps coming back in relationship to what's happening now. Uh, but no, I'm, I don't have, if you're asking, do I have a new book project? Not yet. I always, it takes me a while to figure out what that might be. <laughs> and uh, But you're searching. I'm, I'm beginning to search, let's say, just the way I... I, I came upon Freud by, by the way, reading Stefan Zweig's memoirs. Stefan Zweig, who was the, the, the famous Austrian Jewish writer at the a contemporary of Freud's. And in his memoirs, he talked about meeting Freud in Vienna. In, 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 and, then, and then there's this long gap after Zweig leaves Austria in 1934, realizing after Hitler is taking power in neighboring Germany, this is not good for, for Jews anywhere. And then Freud shows up in London and Fritz Zweig meets him again in London. And then that got me going on this whole notion of, well, why was Freud there so long when people like Zweig were getting out? And, uh, and also Zweig began to allude to uh, to some of this, his circle of friends and just his personality. And it got me intrigued by all of the aspects of the story, which, which then developed into this book. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, keep an eye out for new content across our various social media platforms. The Botschdieber Institute for Austrian-American Studies promotes an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including lands of the former Habsburg Empire, by awarding grants and fellowships, organizing lectures and conferences, and publishing the Journal of Austrian-American History. We engage with a broader public audience through digital programming, including videos, podcasts, and blog posts. Auf Wiedersehen, and see you next time.